The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here, right? It's looking nice. I'm really thankful to the folks that stuck around last Sunday after the service and decorated the trees uh, and served and worked hard to make sure this place would look beautiful. Today we are beginning just a couple, three weeks. The next three weeks we are going to be pausing our series in the book of Genesis. And we're going to be doing an Advent series as we kind of prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Here at Heritage, over the years we have done uh, an Advent series. And each time we do an Advent series, we light a candle as a way to remind us of the light of Christ that came into the world at the Incarnation. Today is actually the second week of Advent. Advent is simply a Latin word that that means coming. We celebrate the coming of Christ when He became flesh that first Christmas morning in a manger in Bethlehem. And as we celebrate Advent today, the the texts that we are using for this Sunday and then the following several Sundays all the way up to Christmas Eve are going to be the texts that were in the the Advent guides that we provided for you in the the Connection Center uh, that we're encouraging families to read through. The same text that you'll be reading as a family are the same text that we're going to be preaching through the the next three or four weeks. And the text I'm preaching today is going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. But before we we turn there, the secondary text that we see in our Advent guides is Micah 5, 2. And before we jump into Luke, I want us to look quickly at Micah 5, 2. Micah 5 is, uh, Micah is a, it's an Old Testament book. It's, It's towards the end of the Old Testament. Maybe the fifth or sixth book before the final, uh, the final book of the Old Testament. It was written some 700 years before Jesus. And though this book was written like seven centuries before the coming of Christ, we, as we read it, we get the sense that it's, it's all about Jesus. As we read through the book of Micah, we get the sense that it's about this coming uh, king who was both shepherd and king. Who, who would be a king like David, only greater, who would come from the city of Bethlehem. So if Micah 5.2... But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This prophecy in the book of Micah, written some 700 years before the coming of Jesus, says that this this shepherd king, this king that is greater than David, will come from the small town of Bethlehem. And in fact, the text calls Bethlehem too little. It reminds us as readers that, that David was this unlikely king. If you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when, when Samuel goes to anoint the king of Israel, he, Jesse shows all his sons, but he doesn't show his son David because he was this ruddy-faced boy who was out in the field watching the sheep. He was too little, but he was the king. Bethlehem's this little town, and it seems like this, this little town that's an unlikely choice to be the hometown of the king of kings and the lord of lords. This ruler is to come from Bethlehem, and he is from ancient days, meaning that he is the Messiah who hails from the ancient lineage of King David. By the time we get to the New Testament, we see that that New Testament uh, Jewish scholars, they all look to this 5-2 Micah text as kind of the text that would speak to where the Messiah would come from. We see multiple times in the Gospels where they cite this exact passage to say this is where the King of Kings is going to reign from, from Bethlehem. 
And as we, as we center in on Luke chapter 2 today, we see God's people, they're, they're laboring under the oppression of the Roman Empire. They've been waiting desperately, hoping for the coming deliverer. And they're looking to this little town in the south of Israel to be the birthplace of, of this coming king, Bethlehem. Pray with me. Father, as we look to your word, as we consider the birth of Jesus over the next few weeks, God, I pray that this just wouldn't be a, a nostalgic endeavor that we as Christians just remind ourselves of the manger and the nativity and the virgin birth and all those things. God, I pray that as we, as we look to your text, as we look to the scriptures, as we look to the, the book of Luke, God, would you just stir up in us? God, would you open our eyes? Would you, would you do a work in our lives? That this wouldn't just be something that would tickle our brains, but it would stir within our souls that you would draw our eyes to you. God, today, would you give us obedient hearts and searching eyes and a desire to, to walk as you would have us walk. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever longed for a promise to be fulfilled? I mean, when a promise has been made, the more time that passes from the promise made to the promise fulfilled, sometimes the greater the longing can be. My wife and I graduated from college together back in 1998, and I didn't have the courage nor the cash to yet ask her to be my wife, but I knew I wanted her to be my wife, but I was kind of afraid. I got my first job interview in McCall, Idaho to be a high school teacher, and so my wife actually even drove with me across the country from our college in North Dakota to this little high school in McCall, Idaho. I interviewed for a head football coaching job and a teaching job, and I was offered the job on the spot. And my, my girlfriend, Becky, was in the car, and I sort of sheepishly asked her if she would maybe consider one day having a life with me, and maybe would she possibly consider after college maybe moving near me in McCall so we could potentially maybe have life together. And I was nervous, and my, my lips were sticking to my teeth because I thought she was going to say no, and I was freaking out. And, and in the car, she's like, I'll have to think about that. I was like, huh, what? I thought she was going to reject me, and then after a couple hours, she's like, yeah, I would love, I would love to, to start a life with you in McCall, Idaho. And then she moved back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was living in the West, and, and this was in May of 1998, and she promised that she was going to be with me. She was, I adored this woman. I still adore this woman. She was the apple of my eye. I loved her. And it seemed like time just drug by. Every day that we were apart, I, I longed to be with her. I worried she wouldn't come. I worried that the promise would be forgotten. Every day seemed longer than the previous, and it felt like we'd never be together. And I longed to be with her for a long time. It was a long longing, three whole months. I just, I just desperately wanted to see. And then I remember the day, as cheesy as it sounds, it was August 14th, 1998. I was working in a sporting goods store in McCall, Idaho, waiting for her to arrive. When one of my coworkers says, Paul, I think someone's here to see you. And I stand up and I turn around, and there's Becky Douglas. Stunning, breathtaking, heart leaps out of my chest. The longing was realized. Joy washed over me. When a right longing is realized, there is great joy. So much of our lives are lived out in longing. When we're little, we long to be big. When we're young, we long to be old. When we're old, we long to be young. When we're immature, we long for maturity. When we're students, we long to be graduates. When we're lonely, we long to fall in love. I've been told that when women are pregnant, they long to give birth. Parents of small children long for their kids to grow. Parents of adult children long for their kids to be young. And as we journey through life, we, we long to grow our influence. We long to, to build career. And then once we build career and establish influence, we long to get away from the pressures of it. And we dream of rest and retirement. 
And for all of us that are in Christ, there will be a day where we'll long for this life to fade into the life eternal. I'm sure many of you have seen, I know I have seen those saints whose bodies have grown weary and whose affections for God have overflown and you see them longing to be with Jesus in those final moments of life. So often in our Christian lives, uh, we, we are living in the midst of longing. Sometimes we long to know more of God and sometimes we long to just find contentment in who God says he is. Sometimes we, we, we long to better serve God, and other times we really desire for God to serve us in our needs. Sometimes we long to see those we love restored to God, and other times we really beg God to do a restorative work in our own lives. Sometimes we long to be patient, and other times we long for God to quicken his return. So much of our spiritual lives are lived out in the midst of longing. Consider with me, if you will, the people of God at the time of Luke's gospel. Consider the long longing of God's people. This is a longing that began back in the Garden of Eden. It's interesting that we're in the book of Genesis and then we're jumping into Luke because so much of what we talk about today has its roots back in Genesis. But th there's the garden and then sin tears a hole through the garden. Shame washes over Adam and Eve. They, they realize they're naked. There is now hostility between God and humankind. And even as God is speaking his curse, even as he's cursing Satan, the serpent, already in the garden after the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, we see God making a promise. We've read this over the last several weeks. As God is speaking to the serpent, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Genesis 3.15. And between her offspring and your offspring, there will be enmity. He, the offspring of Eve, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or as the NIV puts it, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We see God warning the serpent cursing the serpent and at the same time making a promise. He's promising that the seed of Eve will one day crush forever the head of Satan. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. Eventually she gets pregnant and they begin to procreate the population. So what do you think Eve was thinking when she began to have children in Genesis chapter 4? Do you think that potentially she was wondering and hoping that maybe one of her sons would be this promised seed? Maybe one of the first-generation humans or second-generation humans would be the head-crushing seed that God promised. Maybe she thought, could it be Cain? Could it be Abel? At least one of these sons has to be the one to crush the head of the serpent, but no. The righteous son was soon dead, the other son his killer. The longing for the promise to be kept would last just a little longer. Maybe Seth, another son of Adam and Eve. Maybe he was the one to crush the head of the serpent. But by the time we get to Genesis 6, the whole world is corrupt. And if God hadn't spared Noah, the whole of humanity would be completely and entirely destroyed. So the longing for the promise to be kept lasts a little longer. But then there's Noah and his family on the ark. The, the floodwaters subside. They, they step out of the ark. This is kind of the do-over for the human race. Maybe Noah was this one who would crush the head of the serpent. But no, by the time we're in Genesis chapter 9, Noah's a drunkard and his sons aren't much better. When we get to Genesis chapter 11, the whole world is conspiring against God to build, to build a tower in Babel to make themselves greater than God so God confuses their languages. He divides them up. He spreads them across the face of the earth and the longing would last just a little longer. But in Genesis 12, we see God make another promise, this time to Abram, similar to the promise he made in Genesis chapter 3. God tells Abram that, that through the seed of Abram that all nations would be blessed. And so there's renewed hope in Genesis chapter 11, or chapter 12. 
through Abraham, the, 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 the head-crushing seed of Eve would, would one day come. And, and so then God promises Abram and Sarai that they're going to have a son, and they wait 25 years. They make many, many missteps, making it very clear that they're not the ones. Then all, all of a sudden, Isaac is born to two elderly people, and there's this hope that maybe in him, in Isaac, this promise of God would be kept. No, not Isaac. So the longing lasts a little longer. What about Isaac's son, Jacob? Could it be in Jacob that the promise is kept? The head of Satan crushed forever? Satan was a mess, or Joseph, Jacob was a mess. He was a deceiver. He's not the one. The longing continues a little longer. But Jacob has 12 sons. Maybe one of these 12 sons would be the ones to, to fulfill the promise of God. No, not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi, not Judah, not Issachar, not Zebulun, not Joseph, not Benjamin, not Gad, not Asher, not Dan, not Naphtali, none of them. As one writer puts it, these are not the kind of men which inspire confidence, especially in regard to the fulfillment of God's gracious promises. So the longing lasts just a little bit longer. We're just at the end of Genesis by now. It takes us through the whole book of the Old Testament, and we see this long, longing continues generation after generation after generation. With each new birth, perhaps this, this mother was hoping that maybe this is now the seed that will fulfill the promise of God and crush the head of Satan. With each new child, there's this new hope of a promised deliverer. But those hopes are soon crushed because it wasn't Moses and it wasn't Joshua. It wasn't any of the corrupt 11 judges of Israel, not Othniel, not Shamgar, not Deborah, not Gideon, not Tola, not Jair, not Jephthah, not Ibsen, not Elon, not Abdon, not Samson. No, none of them. The longing would continue. The longing for the promise to be kept would last a little bit longer for God's people. By the time we get to the book of the Ruth, the long longing continues. The promised seed is not in Perez, it's not in, in Herzon, it's not in Ram, it's not in Aminadab, it's not in Nashon, it's not in Salmon, it's not in Boaz, it's not in Obed, it's not in Jesse. It's not in any of the priests or the kings, it's not in Samuel, it's not in Saul, it's not even in King David or his son Solomon. It's not in Rehoboam or Abijah or Jehoshaphat or Joram or Uzziah or Jotham or Ahaz or Hezekiah or Manasseh or Amos or Josiah or Je Jeconiah. None of them. The longing continues. The people of God are laboring. They're desperate. When is this promised seed going to come? And as the Jewish people go into Babylonian captivity, the longing continues. And even when they come out, the promised one isn't Ezra. It's not Nehemiah. Nor is it Shealtiel or Zerubbabel or Abayud or Elakim or Azor or Zadok or Akim or Eliud or Eleazar or Matin or Jacob. No, the longing continues. Nor was God's promise fulfilled in Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth, who would be betrothed to a young woman named Mary. But history was about to change. The long longing for the promise to be kept was about to end. Joseph and Mary's son, Jesus, he would be this promised head-crushing seed of Eve that would triumph over Satan. He is the one that God promised Abraham that would bless all nations. In Christ, the head of Satan would be forever crushed. The long longing would finally be satisfied and the joy of God's people would be complete. Would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. This is the setting. There's been thousands of years of longing. And in fact, there's been over 400 years of silence from God. God had spoken through the prophets, but he hasn't spoken in over 400 years. So the longing of God's people is as intense as ever as we enter into Luke's gospel. 
The Roman uh, uh, Empire had been oppressing the, the people of God for some 60 years. King Herod the Great was a corrupt leader. The religious elite that were supposed to represent the, the spiritual identity of God's people were fractured. They were power-hungry and corrupt. The Jewish people were heavy and, and, and weary and praying for God's intervention. They had been silenced for 400 years. And the very last words of God had spoke to them through the prophet Malachi. Just kind of warned them and, and, and give them a truth to, to hold on to. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God, God tells them that there's going to be this prophet like Elijah who is going to come before the, the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so the Jewish people were waiting for one like Elijah to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And then as Luke opens up, after thousands of years of longing and 400 years of silence, the heavens begin to shake. And the silence is broken and God begins to move. The gospel begins in, in chapter 1 with this, in verse, verse, verse 5, with this priest named Zechariah who's doing his priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem. And as he's doing his duties, an angel of the Lord Gabriel appears to him and says he's going to have a son. His wife, who can't have children, is going to bear a son and his name is to be John. And he'll prepare a way for the coming Messiah. And then as the, as the gospel continues in chapter 1, we, we go up to Nazareth and we see this young girl named Mary who's betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. And Gabriel speaks to Mary and he foretells her that Jesus the Christ. He says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And, and as, the, as the first chapter of John continues, we see Elizabeth and Mary encountering one another. In the, in, the, in the child in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist leaps as he encounters the in utero Jesus in Mary. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth begins to speak this beautiful hymn over Mary. She says these amazing things. She says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And then Mary in return speaks this beautiful poem, this hymn called the Magnificat. She begins by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. And as you read through the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, there's these allusions to the Old Testament. And there's these allusions and these foreshadowings of the things that Luke unpacks in his gospel. And then John the Baptist is born. And as John the Baptist is born, Zechariah, he speaks forth the words of God in prophecy. God is no longer silent. After a longing that stretches all the way back to the Garden of Eden at the beginning of humanity, after 400 years of silence, the heavens are shaking. And not only is God speaking, but he's moving in supernatural ways across the face of the earth. Like a long, dormant volcano that's been sitting silent for centuries, then suddenly and unmistakably the mountain begins to rumble and shake. Something big is about to happen. And that's the setting as we enter into our text in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Canerius, Quirinius, thank you. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each with his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time for her to give birth came. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger 
because there was no place for them at the inn. Look back with, with me, if you would, before you close your text. To, to the verse, there's a little phrase in verse 1 that it says, a decree went out. Pay attention to that. And then look in verse 3 where it says, all went to be registered. So, so a decree went out and all went to be registered. And here we see God, the way in which he chooses to perfectly keep his promise. And here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down if you are a note taker. Underneath the heading of a, of a promise perfectly kept, write this down, a decree. We see God beginning to keep his promise through a decree in which Joseph and Mary must go and register. God is keeping his promise through an invasive and inconvenient governmental decree. Caesar Augustus issues this, this census to be taken. And as we look at the text, we read names like uh, Quirinius, and we read names like Caesar Augustus, and these are names that we know of. These are historical names that are well established. We know that Caesar Augustus was the, the emperor of Rome from around 27 BC till about 14 AD, right at the time of Christ's birth. And we know that Quirinius was this well-known ruler and governor at the time of Jesus. As I read these two verses, I recognize that these, these aren't just fictional characters. These historical figures that are mentioned in the first three verses of Luke chapter 2, these are people that lived and walked and breathed on planet Earth. They're historical figures. Which reminds me that the gospel is historical. I'm reminded that Jesus is fact. He's not fable. He was a real man. He was not the work of mythology. I'm reminded to be a Christian is not to subscribe to some subjective psychological way of thinking. To be a Christian is not to, to put myself into some self-help philosophy. Jesus Christ and the gospel message are rooted in empirical truth. I love what, I love what Michael Horton says in his book, Core Christianity. Listen to this. The average person on the street relegates religion to the realm of irrational feelings, not facts, and dismisses it accordingly. To such people, belief is completely subjective. The question is not whether it is true, but whether it works for you. That might be a legitimate assumption for other religions and self-help philosophies, but Christianity rests on historical public claims. These claims are either true or false. They cannot be true for some people and not for others. The gospel's validity does not depend on how well it works for you or how it makes your life more meaningful or how it gives you moral direction and inspirational motivation. Instead, the gospel is a very particular claim based upon events that happened in dateable history with significance for the entire cosmos. Did you ever think of that? Jesus was born. He really was. And he lived. He really did. And he died and he lived again. This is not wishful thinking, but wonderful truth. Caesar Augustus stands in contrast to Christ. Caesar hailed from his palace in Rome, while Christ from a manger in Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man on the planet. He sat atop the world's greatest empire. He had untold resources at his behest. And a known title for Caesar Augustus was son of God. Did you know this? Caesar was, Augustus was adopted by Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was, was deified by, by the Roman government. So he was considered uh, the divine Julius. And he adopted Octavius, who became Augustus. And when he adopted him, Augustus became known as the son of the divine Julius. Later on, it became shortened as the son of God, capital, or lowercase s, lowercase g. In our passage today, we have one, a human leader who calls himself son of God, lowercase s, lowercase g. 
And we have one who is absolutely the Son of God, uppercase S, uppercase G. And it's interesting that the one who you would think would be in a palace and have tons of power is not the one who is God himself. It was probably easy for Augustus to have a God in complex. There's none more powerful than him. He, he sat at the top of the world's first great superpower. Caesar could do whatever he wanted, regardless of the impact it had on those around him. So as our passage begins, we see this Caesar handing down back-breaking decrees without any consideration for how it's going to affect his subjects, the most difficult and compromised. Can you imagine the imposition of a decree like this on the poor? Travel to your hometown, no matter what it takes. Register, so I can know how many people are in my kingdom. Imagine being a blue-collar Jew, living paycheck to paycheck, minding your own business, trying to just get through each day, trying to carve out some semblance of a life, raise your family, when some out-of-touch, oppressive, power-hungry political leader from his or her ivory tower hands down a decree that places a knee-buckling burden on your back. Not only inconvenient, but for many, overwhelming. Drop whatever you're doing and go where I tell you. Do what I tell you to do. I don't care the personal cost it has on you, says Caesar. How maddening. Can you imagine a government making a decree that severely impacts and undermines the plans of our lives? Can you understand or imagine a decree that would break the back of the common people? But as important and as powerful as Caesar was, and as he fancied himself, he was simply an instrument in the hand of God. Nothing more. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. As I was studying this passage this week with our own Kathy Johnson, she said something that really stuck out to me. She said, of all the decisions and decrees that Augustus handed down over the 40-plus years of his life as emperor of Rome, none were more important or significant or had greater implication than this decree. Because he set up the circumstances that would bring forth the Lord Jesus. The Son of God, lowercase s, lowercase g, Caesar Augustus, was simply an instrument in the hand of God, uppercase g. God used this man to orchestrate the details of history and bring about the birth of the true Son of God. From a palace in Rome to a manger in Bethlehem. From a Son of God to the only Son of God. God was sovereign over the actions of power-hungry leaders then. God is sovereign over the actions of power-hungry leaders today. All of history bows at the will of God. He orchestrates all things for his purpose. Let that give you peace today. A promise perfectly kept, a decree, a registration. Luke 2, verse 4. Let's read the first part of verse 4 as we move on. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Stop there. If you want to underline or circle or highlight the phrase or the name of the town Bethlehem, this is important. Because in keeping his promise perfectly, we see this destination. A decree, and now a destination, Bethlehem. The distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem was over a hundred miles at some point when Mary was well along in her pregnancy, it was after her first trimester because she was with Elizabeth in her first trimester. So she's at least in her second trimester, most likely in her third trimester. She and Joseph embark on this difficult journey a hundred miles through the mountains to, to Bethlehem. 
Text doesn't give us a lot of specifics about what was happening in Nazareth, but I think we can speculate about what might have been taking place in the city of Nazareth, where both Joseph and Mary were from. She was an unwed, pregnant teen. Adultery was a sin punishable by stoning death at this time. She was betrothed to Joseph. She had this agreement with him, in other words, to be married. And they, they, were, they were under contract, but they had not yet consummated the relationship. In a Jewish culture, an unwin pregnant teen would have been a, a, a mind-blowing scandal. And so initially, Joseph, he decided to back out of the deal. We can read this in Matthew's Gospel. But then God comes to him in a dream and says, No, 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 this, this child with Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You'll name him Jesus. And so Joseph changes his mind. He says, no, this is, I'm, I'm going I'm to stay betrothed to Mary. And I can imagine in this little town, as she began to show in that second and third trimester, I can imagine that there was whispering and there was gossiping and there was finger pointing and there was shaming and there was conspiring. I grew up in a small town. I know exactly what that's like. And after the pressure of probing eyes, I can imagine that it wasn't hard for, for Joseph and Mary just to feel the weight of that. In the midst of all of it, if that wasn't enough, then comes this decree. You don't have any money. You're miserably pregnant. Hop on a donkey and travel 100 miles across a mountain range. Consider the burden on Joseph. He's not even married and he's doing this. Consider the, 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 the plight of Mary pregnant and dealing with all the social pressures on the back of a mule for 108 miles plodding towards Bethlehem. Towards Bethlehem. Super important. Remember what we read in Micah 5 too? This is the city that the Messiah was going to come from. The one that was going to crush the head of, of, of the serpent was going to hail from Bethlehem. The problem was that Mary and Joseph lived in the wrong spot. The Savior wasn't supposed to come from Nazareth. And so God, he just does a little thing with Caesar. And he orchestrates the events of history so that this shepherd king, this greater David, this Messiah, could in fact be born in the city he was prophesied to be born in. Augustus was simply God's agent. Remember after Christ's birth, how those who talked about Jesus talked about Bethlehem. This wasn't a mystery. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. We look in, in Matthew, and as the wise men come, and they're saying, hey, the king has been born. We followed the star, and they're talking to King Herod, and they're like, what? what, do you, and so, what do you mean there's been a king born? This is a threat to my throne, Herod thinks. So, three, so Herod goes to the Jewish scholars of the day. He's like, where is the king going to be born? They're like, Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. Micah 5, too. You go into, into John chapter 7, it's during the festival of the booths. Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem, and he's, he's preaching and teaching. He says that streams of life-giving water will flow from him, and people are debating who this Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? And they're like, no, no, he's from, he's from Nazareth. The Messiah has to come from Bethlehem. They didn't know that he had been down there for the decree. What may have seemed like a random and disjointed series of events, if you were living them, if you were in Mary and Joseph's shoes... It was actually God-orchestrated. Every odd and peculiar and, and difficult and maddening event was orchestrated by God to serve his will, to assure that the son would be born where he said he was going to be born. Remember that in your life. When life has taken its toll and you're worn out, our God is sovereign over all things. He tells the sun when to rise and when to go down. He tells the oceans how far they can go. He certainly knows what's going on in your life and mine. So we see a promise kept, a decree. We see a destination. Go back to Luke chapter 4. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. 
Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because it was the house, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Pay attention to the phrase lineage of David. Underline that or highlight that if you're the kind of person that likes to mark in your Bible. After a decree and a destination, we see God continuing to keep his promise perfectly when he when he has this man named Joseph who is part of a Davidic lineage. A decree, a destination, and a Davidic lineage is how God was keeping his promise. That was where Joseph hailed from. He was from the house and lineage of David. And we understand this when we go back to, to the book of Genesis. We see when, when God is speaking to Abram in the, in the covenant, uh, the Abrahamic covenant in, in Matthew chapter 17, or rather in Genesis chapter 17, as God is kind of spilling out the specifics, the specifics of his covenant with, with Abraham, he, he tells Abraham that I will make you into nations and kings will come from you. This is long before David, long before the monarchy in, in Israel. And then as God is working out the covenant with David much later in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel, God says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So kings with eternal thrones are what we're talking about here. The promises of God to Abraham and David are fulfilled and perfectly kept in Joseph's son, Jesus. It is in and through Jesus that all the families of the earth will be blessed. It is in and through the eternal... It is in and through Jesus that the eternal Davidic throne will have a king that will reign forever. Jesus is keeping this promise perfectly. And as an unwitting and weary Joseph and Mary stumble into Bethlehem, the promises of God are being fulfilled. A decree, a destination, a Davidic lineage. Finally, verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. As God's promise is being perfectly kept, we see it manifest in, this, in a delivery. Jesus is born. A decree, a destination, a Davidic lineage, and finally, a delivery. And as we start thinking about the, the birth of Jesus, our minds automatically go to all the Christmas movies and Christmas cards and TV shows and, and displays in front of city halls and churches that we've seen. We all have these preconceived ideas of what that moment was like, but let's just take a moment or two to look back at some of the things this text reveals to us. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, we read in verse 6. It doesn't say how long they were there. It could have been a month. It could have been two months. They might have just stumbled into town that night when, she's, when her water broke. And can you imagine being Mary? This is her first kid. She's 100 miles from home. Mom is nowhere to be seen. She's by herself. She's got, she's got Joseph, who's her betrothed. But who knows how, how tight their relationship is at this point. She's an afraid, terrified teenager whose water is broken, and she has to confront the horrors of giving birth without anybody there to support her. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Underline that or highlight that. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Not only did she not have her family with her, but this was his first child. And could it be the fact that Luke tells us that this was the firstborn son of Mary, that he's establishing that he is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne as the firstborn son? After he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and lied in a manger. Swaddling cloths were not something poor people had in this time. 
They were like what we would consider diapers. They didn't have them. So people that were impoverished in the time of Jesus didn't have swaddling cloths. They would run around naked because they couldn't afford it. But the rich, they would swaddle their children in clothes as a diaper. So when the shepherds would come down from the hills in, in the next section of the text, and they would see a child in a manger, I mean the height of poverty, but also wrapped in swaddling cloths, it would have been this amazing picture of this special king. I read this week that Jesus was wrapped in claws as a sign that he was special and that he was a king of kings. The significance of his royalty should never be diminished. There's no place for them at the inn. Divine royalty, the king of kings, the lord of lords, homeless and relegated to a manger. The son of God entered human history in the humblest of ways. I love how Paul puts it in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What's the mind of Christ Jesus? Verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so as we look at our text, here we have it. A promise perfectly kept in Jesus Christ, a decree, a destination, a Davidic lineage, a delivery. This is the advent of our Lord. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. This is why we light a candle. What an incredible account. The Creator joined creation. Divinity was delivered as a newborn baby. The King of the universe was born to an unwed teen mother. Royalty relegated to a feeding trough. And then I asked myself a question. Why? Why did God give Luke these words for us today? It's an incredible story. God in the flesh, born of a virgin, in the most humble of circumstances. It's incredible. God's promise perfectly kept. Ah. But why? But why do we, why did God, God could have preserved any words. He could have, he could have kept any of this for us to know. But God desired to, to, to place this account in his living word for us today. Why? I think we get an understanding of why Luke wrote his gospel in the first place. If we turn back to chapter 1, I'd encourage you to, to turn back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. As Luke is, is writing the, the invocation to his, his gospel, he's, he's, he's giving thanks to the, the person who's receiving the... He's wrote this on behalf of Theophilus, who was probably a rich person who paid for the research. Luke tells us exactly why he wrote this. Look at verse 3 with me. Luke 1, verse 3. Luke says, It, seems good, it seemed good to me having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse 4. Why did he write this account? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke writes these words for them then and for us today that you and I in this place might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught that have come from the Word of God. We can have certainty this orderly account of Luke is the very word of God. This portrait of Jesus was carefully written in, in research, and we can have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. So what does that mean? Well, if God's promise was perfectly kept in the first advent, God's promise will be perfectly kept in the second advent. If God was faithful to bring Christ into the earth the first time, we can have certain confidence that he's going to bring Christ back to earth the second time. We can have certainty concerning the things we've been taught. Church, listen to this. 
with confident certainty, we can hold to the hope that God became flesh in Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of God's promise, which means we, with confident certainty, we can trust in the righteousness of Christ that perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the law, which means with confident certainty, we can look to the cross assured that on it, on the cross, Jesus perfectly satisfied God's justice against my sin and your sin, which means with confident certainty, we can anchor our hope in the risen Christ who has overcome both sin and death as our perfect Savior, which means with confident certainty, we can know all longings find their perfect satisfaction in Him. Donald Gray Barnhouse puts it this way. How great a sin to live in darkness after the light has come. If the Lord Jesus Christ has not saved you from your sin and then become Lord of your life, the darkness of sin is still upon your soul. Your eyes are still blinded. Your life is empty of all that God wants you to have. Today he says to you through John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall have the light of life. In a dark world, we can have confident certainty in the light of the gospel that is our true hope. That's the thing about hope, right? Hope is not something we realize in the moment. Like, hope is, the definition of hope is it's rooted in something that's yet to be. We hope in something yet to be. And we read this account, and we look at the scriptures, and we, and we, we study the character of God because we know that he is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And so our hope is not in some... A random set of circumstances. Our hope is in a God who, who makes promises and fulfills promises. And though maybe we're not drinking deeply of that promise today, perhaps the fog's a little thick today, perhaps it's difficult in my life today, I can have confident hope. Because he's done it before, he'll do it again. This is what hope is. And this informs the way we long. Because you and I, we have longings in this life. And that's what I want to just leave you with today, is this question. I've been praying that God, by the power of his spirit, would bring conviction into your life as I ask you this question. Is there longing in your soul today? Is there a longing in your soul today? Has the angst of this world created an ache in you? Is there a craving that nothing can seem to satisfy? I call this the background noise of life. It seems to me that when the lights go off and the distractions stop and I'm left with just myself, there's this ache that nothing in this world can seem to satisfy. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Is there a longing in your soul? And sometimes these longings aren't righteous longings. If we were to confess sin to one another today, my guess is I could share some things to you that you'd cause your eyebrows to raise. My guess is in your life, in your secret life, there's some longings that you don't want anybody to know about. I know I'd have them. There's a quote that's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton that says, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Actually, it wasn't Chesterton that said it. It's from a 1945 novel called The World the flesh and Father Smith. And in this novel, there's this woman. She's an unbelieving woman. She's a, she's a seductive woman. And she's, she's talking with this priest. They're having a conversation. And she says to the priest um, something to the effect of religion is only a substitute for sex. To which the priest humbly responds to this woman. I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion. 
and that the young man who rings the bell of a brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Is there a longing in your soul today? All longings ultimately find their satisfaction in Christ. We get caught on these, these detours, these wrong pursuits. Every human quest is ultimately a quest for God. One theologian puts it this way. The fundamental orientation of the human heart is to seek God and the peace, meaning, and truth that only he can bring. The God-shaped whole we are all created with. And when we chase after everything else, women or men, riches or romance, power, position, knowledge, we do so seeking God even if we can't realize it. Many of us in this room today and tuning in from across our campus have worn down paths going in a thousand directions away from God trying to illegitimately satisfy the longings of our soul. The cravings of our soul only find satisfaction in him. The long longings that haunt us only find satisfaction in him. This is why God became flesh, flesh that we might encounter him, that we might be satisfied in him. So I want to ask you one question. In addition to, is there a longing in your soul? I want to ask you a question that maybe you can narrow that down a little bit. This is between you and God and maybe another trusted person. Are your longings leading you away from Jesus or toward him? Are your longings leading you away from Jesus or toward him? I have tremendous hope that one day all longings will end when every tear is going to be dried, every pain will subside, the death will be no more. Today we, we can declare like the lyrics of one of my favorite hymns, In Christ Alone My Hope Is Found. He is my light, my strength, my song, like the cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled and when strivings cease. We long no more. This is God's promise to us. It was his promise fulfilled in salvation passed through a decree, a destination, a Davidic language, and a delivery. And the same God who kept his promise yesterday will keep his promise tomorrow. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so very much for this privilege you give us of gathering in this place on this day. God, of, of, of allowing our minds to, to, to focus on the, the advent, the, the first coming, uh, the birth of Jesus, God. Would that inform our worship? Not just worship in song, but as, as Aaron was sharing today, just the way in which we live our lives. That you are a God who makes promises and fulfills promises. And God, as we think about the longings of our soul today, the righteous ones and the not-so-righteous ones. God, would you help us understand how they find their, their satisfaction only in you? God, as we look to the, the people of God who, who experience the end of this longing in the gospel account of the, of the nativity, God, would you allow us to, to look at the world today, look at our lives today? God, be honest with ourselves about the longings we have. And God, would you allow us to, to experience full and complete satisfaction in you? God, we love you. We thank you so very much that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're, we're not going to have a closing song. So I just wanted to send you out with a verse in the book of Philippians. Would you go ahead and stand? Paul, as he's finishing up his letter to the Philippians, he says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. God bless you, church. I'll see you next Sunday. You're dismissed.